Crosstalk. This is the title of the series, which we've been looking at for eight of the weeks in the summer. We're now in week seven, and we're thinking about the cross. Now, I always think that we've got to be careful with our terminology we use in churches, because cross to you and me means many things. If you're new to the Christian life, or <clears throat> maybe you're a young person, maybe you're 15, 16, 17, and you're in big church, and things go over your head. The cross is what we use to signify or talk about what Jesus did when he died on the cross. It's not just about two bits of wood. It's Jesus, the Son of God, dying on the cross for our sins and then being raised again. That's what we mean when we say the cross of Christ. It's far bigger than just the physical pieces of wood. I'm sure you've got that, but in case you don't, that's what the cross is about. And we've been looking at, uh, I think the next slide, eight series, eight parts of the series. The, the first two, Christoph took, and he talked about the, what happened at the cross in terms of salvation, of Jesus being the Son of God. Those are great. All of them are great to listen to, but certainly they're the foundation of what Jesus did physically and spiritually for us on the cross. The others, the cross and power, suffering, ambition, failure, life, and reconciliation are the outworkings of what has happened because Jesus did this, therefore these things follow, and they're very important. And today, as I say, we're going to look at the cross and reconciliation. Mine's going to be very notable because it's the biggest word at least, so there we are. What are we going to say about the cross and reconciliation? First of all, let me show you the world's biggest bridge. Here it comes. Just, does anybody know um, where it is? Anybody any idea? Oh, for goodness sake. Or, <clears throat> okay, it's in China. There it is. Let's put it up. From eastern port of Qingdao to the offshore island of Huangdao. I pardon. If anybody can speak Mandarin, I'm very sorry. It's been very badly pronounced. That is the world's biggest bridge. Okay, now don't put the answer up just yet. Okay, hold on, Paul. Anybody know how long it is? Roughly. Here it comes. 24 miles long. That's longer from Dover to Cali, if anybody's did that over the summer. 24 miles long. Those little pillars and posts, there are over 5,000 of those. You wouldn't have to know I'm an engineer, by the way. There they are, and it's off there, 24 miles long. It cost one billion pounds to make, and it took four years. And there it is. Has anybody going to be brave enough to say they've ever been on it? It's an ambition of mine, sad that I am, I want to actually be on that bridge someday. I will let Jill drive, because I'll drive off it. But there it is, the world's longest bridge. So there it is. <clears throat> Very deep ocean it goes through, 24 miles wide. Here's a question. It's not a trick question. The next slide shows us, thanks to Google Maps, the Belfast Lock. There it is. And there's a line drawn between Whitehead and Bangor. Is it possible to build a bridge between Whitehead and Bangor. It's not a trick question. And the answer must be obviously yes. Now, why would you ever want to do it? It's an odd issue, but yes, it's possible to do it. The water isn't as deep. It's not as wide. Therefore, because of the big bridge, it must be possible to do that. The only thing that's lacking is the will to do it, and I suppose the money to pay for it. I'll come back to that. Remember the two bridges. Okay, let's look at... Um, <clears throat> The cross and reconciliation. We've got some verses that are going to come up here. They're on page 1182 in your pew Bibles, if you want to read along with me. Then there's going to be another one in 1174, a couple of pages earlier. Colossians chapter 1, 19 to 22, and then Ephesians 2, 11 to 18. The Apostle Paul's writing to the people in Colossae, and he says in verse... Um, <clears throat> I think I'm starting at 15, actually. 
He, that's Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And here's our bit that we're interested in. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Eight pages further back, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Pardon me. Therefore, verse 11, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done on the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross for which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. God's Word. Fantastic. First question we need to ask, what needs to be reconciled? We're going to look at the cross and reconciliation. What needs to be reconciled? And to do that, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give you the big picture. Um, I'm a, I've been a Christian for many years, and I've learned that a lot of Christians know individual bits of the picture, but not the full picture. So I'm going to give the full picture. I'll take some time to do it, and there's a reason for doing that. God in Genesis 1, creates. He creates the cosmos. With the Hubble telescope, they're still finding bits of it they never saw before. He creates the cosmos. He creates earth and all the wonderful things. And the pinnacle of creation on the sixth day is he creates mankind, men and women, you and me. And we are, believe it or not, the pinnacle of his creation. And there we are. And he creates us, and it says in the Bible, in his image, I always wondered what that meant. And I talked to some guys who were able, far better than me in the Bible, to explain what in his image means. Back in those ancient, ancient days, if a ruler ruled a land or a place, and the very extremes of their country, their edge of their, where they reigned, where their dominion was, they would put an image of themselves there so people would know, I'm walking through this, and there's an image of the person who reigns is in control of this particular area. That's the thought that is most in the minds of the initial readers of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
You and I are made in God's image. God made this creation. We are the pinnacle, and he puts us in charge. He makes us priests and kings. We are actually co-regents, if you understand that term. We are joint rulers of his creation. And we are expected to rule his creation, and we're expected to reflect his characteristics, his relationship with us into this creation of goodness, peace, joy, wonder, all of those things. And to reflect back from this wonderful creation that he has made, the praise and the worship back to God the Creator. We are to be co-reigners, and we are in charge, if you like. That's what it means to be made in God's image. See, we are much more than animals. And being made in God's image, we reflect back to God and reflect into the world that God part of us, that reflection of God. God takes a big risk. Two things. He wants to dwell with mankind. I find that amazing. The God who makes everything wants actually to dwell with us, not just to be our next door neighbor, so to speak, but to relate to us, to talk, to have this relationship. And the Bible uses this word dwelling. He wants to dwell with us. Uh, I sometimes think we suffer from this little image we have of um, uh, Adam walking in the garden at the cool of day. God comes down and talks to him as if God's been away doing his job. Adam's doing his job. And just at that time, God comes down for a wee chat and he goes back to heaven. That's, not the, the, that's to show the closeness of the relationship, not the extent of it. And man wants, or God wants to live with man. He wants to dwell with him. Second thing God does, makes a huge risk. I would not do this. He says to mankind effectively, okay, you decide. I'm giving you a will. I will not dominate you. I will not be, make you a robot. You decide whether you're going to follow me, follow my ways and do what I want or your own will. That's a huge risk. And there's tragedy. We know the story. From Genesis 3 onwards, man and women, both of them, decide to do what they want to do before what God wants them to do. Very simple test, but they didn't, they didn't pass it. They failed it. And it shows from then on that everything starts to go downhill. They decide, I want to run my life, and I will push God to the side or ignore him eventually. And things start to get worse and worse, quite quickly, actually. There's violence, there's death. All sorts of things happen. And man is in this awful state. What happens with God wanting to dwell with us? There's this huge, huge gap which opens up between a God who is holy and usans who aren't holy, who rebel against them. In fact, it's not just a gap. The Bible actually talks about we are at, at enmity. It's, it's an old-fashioned word. We're, we're working against God. In fact, the Bible uses terms like it's a war between us and God. You'll have read that already in Colossians. Making peace means that we were at war between them. And what we've got a situation is where man is now at war with God. There's a huge gulf. God is over here. Sorry for the visuals, guys. You're trying to follow me on the camera. Over here, God is here. And we are way over here. A huge gap opens up. It's a gap that has sin, suffering, and eventually death. Separation between God and us. Huge risk he takes. But still, God wants to dwell with mankind. And he sets in motion a rescue plan. And that rescue plan meanders its way, in my opinion, through the Old Testament, twists and turns. Because God is determined to dwell with mankind. He will do it. But he knows this gulf has arisen. 
and must deal with it. Now, let's talk about reconciliation, first of all. Reconciliation is not just coming together and ignoring your differences. Um, do you remember in the First World War? I don't know when it was. I think it was at Christmas. The two sides got out of, the t- out of their trenches. They came together and played a football match and sang whatever it is, a couple of Christmas carols. I wasn't there personally. Uh, but there they were, and they sang these Christmas carols together. And <clears throat> was that reconciliation? No, it wasn't. Because the next day they got in the same trenches, and they tried to kill each other again. That's not reconciliation. Even our politicians, dare I suggest, be a little bit pl- pol- political, they are not reconciled. Because they're still fighting each other. Everything they say is opposing each other. They may have stopped sanctioning violence in a certain way, but they're not reconciled. Reconciliation means looking at the issue that separates and dealing with it. Whatever the cost, having the will to do that and the determination to do that, that's what reconciliation is. And God sees that there needs to be this reconciliation. And this rescue plan... It, it does another strange thing. He seems to work through individuals. I wouldn't do that. He seems to pick a guy like Abraham. Abraham, from you, all the nations will be blessed through your descendants. Through one guy. And they grow and they become the, the nation of Israel. And they're special in a certain way where God chooses them to reflect God. He gives them his word. He gives them the law. He gives them all sorts of commandments and blessings and builds a covenant with them, in fact, And he wants them to bless the rest of the world. And he will bring rescue through the selection of this bunch of people. But even then, there's a hint that they're not up to it. Even when we look at Abraham and being called, the next chapter or two, this great man of faith hasn't got enough faith in God to not lie to the Pharaoh and different people about his wife. Says it's my sister. And there's hints there. Even whenever the people in Israel are getting the law, Moses is on the mountain, and they're getting the law. What are they doing? Well, they think he's been too long away. They think he's died, that God has gone. Let's worship idols that they make out of gold, and they worship golden calves. So there's hence all, even David, their great superstar. You read the life of David. It's pretty dark in places, up to all sorts of temptations. And so what we find going through the Old Testament, a real clatter, is that Israel aren't up to it. In fact, that's because Israel suffer from the same malaise, the same disease, sin, that the rest of us do. And to be honest, the Old Testament finishes on a downer. They're exiled. Oh, they're back from exile, but really they're still exiled. They're not ruling their country. They're not what God wants them to be, a light to the nations. And then it happens. And then he comes, Jesus. This is another amazing thing. Every Christmas, this still gets me. God becomes flesh, and he dwells among us. That's what it means. Back in the Old Testament, these uh, Israelites, they built a tabernacle. It was a tent, and it was quite specific. And in the middle of it, there was this Holy of Holies place where God dwelt, where that was the signified where God dwelt with these people. Big curtain up in front of it. And only once a year, as you know, the high priest went in on Yom Kippur and related to God. And here's this tabernacle. It actually means in Hebrew, the dwelling place of God. But that's not good enough. God comes and tabernacles with us. God actually dwells with us. And for 30 odd years, God himself walked around on this planet. It's very local, geographically very far away from here, but it happened. And you need to listen to those uh, first couple of weeks to realize what Jesus was doing on the cross, dying for us. 
so that he might pay the price for our sin. Actually, the Bible says, we read it. We're going to read it again. He reconciled all things, not just you and me. He reconciled evil. He sorts that. He's going to sort that out someday. Suffering, agony, all of the things that make us frown and wonder. It says that he reconciled all things in him, and he sorted it out. And Jesus comes, and he dwells with us. God wants to dwell with men. And he reconciles us through the death. And this gap, whatever way you want to look at it, is closed. When Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple is torn from the top to the bottom, not the other way around. As if God is going, right, there you go. Access again. You are being reconciled through my son. Not that he ignored the issue or the problem. He dealt with the problem and the issue through his blood and through his sacrifice. It's fantastic. And so God dwells with us. And then Jesus says a real strange thing. He says, it is better for me that I go away and that I send the Holy Spirit. Why? How could that be better? Here's how it's better. God then comes and dwells with us individually. Again, he's choosing individuals to reflect his glory. Guess what? People like you and me, we are to reflect God's glory because his spirit in some mystical way, I can't explain it, lives within us. God is dwelling with us. And all over this planet, in every country, there are dwelling places of God, and it's the hearts and lives and the wholeness of the people that he has redeemed and won won back. It's fantastic. And so there's reconciliation. Now, we are reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. Two kingdoms now. Instead of this kingdom of the earth, and the Jews expected a whole a kingdom, and then it would stop, and then God's kingdom would start. What seems to happen is that there's God's kingdom is coming, and they inter overlap at the moment, where there are two kingdoms in this world. He will sort it all out someday. On that great day, He will sort it out. And the big picture is this, and I love the best verses in the in the Bible, in my opinion. It's a big claim, okay? Revelation 21 and 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here it is, now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has gone. New things have come. He who seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Wow. He will dwell with us. What he's doing, we're the first fruits. We're the glimmers, the shining lights in this kingdom that he's building, which will come in all its fullness someday, reflecting what Adam was supposed to do, what Israel was supposed to do, reflecting God to this world and reflecting back to God, his glory. Worshipping him, actually. So that's the answer, big long answer, to what needs reconciled. What needed reconciled was you and me. Was the world, was the cosmos, but us and Kirkpatrick. We needed to be reconciled to God, and he has done that. That's fantastic. I'm just blown away by that. We should really close now in prayer, but I have to go a wee bit longer. I'm sorry about that. That's reconciliation. God has brought us together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself 
all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Couldn't be clearer. And we are reconciled. I have to ask another question. Why are we reconciled? Um, And I've been challenged about this as I've been looking at it. We are reconciled because God wants to have this relationship. God wants us, longs for us to worship him. So Peter, why have this happened? Why are you personally reconciled? Did you, is that so that you can go, thank you, God. I'm not being irreverent. Thank you, God. You carry on doing your stuff. I'm doing my stuff. And we get together that big day. You're coming. And then I'll be sorted out. No, no, no. He's actually saying, now you can experience this life. This reconciliation. And your job, if you like, I don't like the word job, your task, your calling is to worship me. In fullness. To worship God. And if we are Christians and we're confused what we should be doing with our Christian life, can I just suggest, worship God. Everything stems from that. Now, we need to widen the definition of worship a little, perhaps. It doesn't just mean standing up here, being led, and singing worship songs together. Back in Genesis again. When God talks to Adam, it says, Adam, I want you to, it says, to till the ground and care for it. I'm not getting technical. There are two Hebrew words. There are two Hebrew uh, verbs. And the only time we find them ever again together like that is in portions of Leviticus when they're talking about the priests serving God and worshiping God. And I tend to say, and an Israeli, a person reading that, knowing the Torah, knowing the law, would recognize that. What Adam is asked to do actually is to, and they're translated to obey and to worship. And what we are reconciled for is to obey and to worship. And you can do it 24-7. I'm not claiming I do it 24-7, but we're called to, to do that 24-7. For me, I tend to teach in the tech, okay? Which is a challenge in itself. And every day I get on my wee scooter, it takes me 17 minutes to get on my scooter, and me and God have this same conversation every day. And I say, God, help me. I dedicate this day to you. Lord, help me. This is worship. I am actually trying to obey and follow you and worship you by doing this stuff that I do. I don't know what's going to happen in this classroom today with colleagues, with students. I don't know. But I want to offer this day as worship to you. What does your worship look like? Is it looking after children, getting them up, getting them fed, getting the right clothes on them, sending them off to school, taking them there, taking them back, looking after them at night, talking to them, making sure that everything's okay. And then exhausted by the end of the night, you go, now it's time for worship. No, you have been worshiping already because you've been doing that for God. All sorts of jobs. I can't think of one that isn't one where you can worship God. Even accountants could do it. I'm sorry. Accountancy, or uh, I was going to say ministers. No, we're not going to go there. Any of that, okay? That's too personal. Even if you are, what, a GP, a teacher, an administrator, you're in the police force, whatever, all those jobs. See what you do during the day, wherever you are. That is your worship to God. That is why you have been reconciled. So you and I can reflect, radiate his glory to the world and worship him on the way back. One more thing I'll say about that before we move on, very quickly. Is that if you're like me, and most of you will be like me because we're all the same, I feel I have to work myself up and become holy. I'm quite happy to be saved by grace through faith, but I'm not so sure I want to live by grace through faith. I've got to add my bit somehow, somewhere. 
And so many, many times in my life, almost all the time, I'm trying to work myself up to be holy enough, to be good enough, to think enough good thoughts, to then come into God's presence. And I have learned something recently. God says, come into my presence because I have forgiven you. And from that coming into my presence, I will transform you and I will change you. And that's what I'm discovering slowly. Ask my wife, slowly but surely. That's what's happening, I think where God has transformed me, and I'm, I'm actually losing the attempts to justify myself to a God who says I'm already justified. And we do this all the time. I just want to encourage all of us, just come into God's presence, just worship Him, whatever way that is, whatever shape that looks. Two more things, then I'm finished. Because of that, back to the bridges, because this huge gap has been bridged by God. All other gaps can be bridged. Because the issue of the big gap, separation, are mirrored in the issues that we have with each other. Therefore, as Christians, we should be reconciled to each other, first of all. Now, that's hitting the nub of stuff. I've been in churches long enough to know that doesn't happen always. And we need to be reconciled. Can they build a bridge from Whitehead to Bangor? Of course they can, because they built a longer one. Can I be reconciled to that person who has hurt me, or I have hurt, or we disagree, and we've been disagreeing for years? Can I be reconciled to them? Yes, I can, because he has reconciled us. Now, like the bridge across the Belfast Law, I need to have the will to build it, and I need to pay the cost. And I really want to suggest to us, I don't want to get heavy, but We Christians should be the best reconcilers there is about because we have been reconciled to God and we are aware of that. And there is no place in the church for not having reconciliation. I'm not saying it doesn't cost. I'm not saying it's trivial. Please believe me, there are people who have been hurt and there's forgiveness and all of that. I haven't time to go into that. But we should be reconciled to each other. And that will speak volumes to the world. That's the first point. Before the cross... There are no divisions. And that second little part that we read in Ephesians is Paul talking about the big division in their day. The big division was between Gentile and Jew. And basically he was saying, because God has brought us together, reconciled ourselves to him, therefore we are reconciled to each other. They were huge differences back in those days. Massive differences. Total lifestyle differences. And he says, you're reconciled again. And in the early church had Jews and Gentiles and probably past atheists and all sorts of stuff worship going on. And they learned to be reconciled together. Pray for other people in the church. Reconciliation. I'm not going to say it it needs between Presbyterians and, you know, Methodists or Baptists or Charismatics. But actually, we need to be reconciled together in our churches. And finally, the last thing I'll say, we are to be agents of reconciliation in a divided world. This is much easier to do if you've done reconciliation yourself within your own heart. Um, What does that look like? I don't know. That means reconciling to parties, maybe in your workplace. I've been working long enough to realize there's a huge difference between management and workers. And I've been sometimes in the middle of between that. I'm not saying I've always been trying to reconcile, but trying to bring the two together. Maybe it's a reconciliation in a marriage. Nobody else knows it. But you really could do with being reconciled on a few major issues. Reconciliation is about addressing those issues, paying the costs, and having the will 
for that reconciliation to come. And it will come through the cross. So I'm going to pray now. That's what the cross does for reconciliation. It's just a touch of it. It's only a small part of it. And because of that, we are reconciled to God. Why are we reconciled? So that we can worship him. And God dwelling in us is to be reflected to this world. A world in which we are doing our best to be reconciled. And that's not easy. And to bring reconciliation. Uh, if there's a country that needs reconciliation, it's this. Actually, every country needs re- re- reconciliation. South Africa, Northern Ireland, everywhere. And all our homes, workplaces, communities need us to be bringers of reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you that you reconciled us to your Father. Thank you for bridging that huge gap that you paid the price. You suffered on a cross for us. Thank you. And Lord, help us to learn to run into your worship place, to worship you all day. Forgive us because we don't. Forgive us for our sin and all of that what stops us. <sighs> Help us, Lord, to worship you and allow you to transform us from being in your presence. Help us, Lord, too, to be reconciled in those areas that we need it. It's not easy, Lord, and we're not good at this stuff. And help us to be bringers of reconciliation to this world, reflecting your reconciliation of the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. Amen.